Hello and welcome. We've made it through all of the plays in the first folio now that we have reached Twelfth Night. I am actually recording this episode on the 6th of January, which is traditionally the last day of Christmas celebrations. The Feast of the Epiphany, when the three wise men arrived to visit the infant Jesus, was a feast associated with practical jokes and merriment. Shakespeare's play itself has no particular reference to the title, but then A Midsummer Night's Dream has little reference to its title either. These two plays have been called something like Shakespeare's festive comedies, because they may have been written specifically for performance at the times of year that they mention. For all that, when I made the list of plays and tried to sort them out into an order for this book club journey, I knew I wanted to go through the eight history plays in chronological order, that I should try at least to alternate between different kinds of plays, and that about 36 weeks after Shakespeare's birthday would be Twelfth Night. And here we are. Now, while the title of the play doesn't have any impact on its setting or its story, it might well have suggested to Shakespeare's audience some of the things that they could expect to see in it. As far back as ancient Rome, the festival of Saturnalia took place in December. This was the festival of the god Saturn, and it was one of exuberance and merriment, and often saw people dressing up, sometimes switching genders, or indeed masters playing servants and servants getting some licensed time to mock their masters. Many of these traditions and shenanigans found their way into Christmas celebrations as late as Tudor and Stuart England, So Twelfth Night, as a title, might actually set the tone. We certainly have a good deal of dressing up, of misrule, of boozing and carousing, and of cheeky attempts from servants and employees to change their relationships with their superiors. Not only that, this is one of very few plays that has a subtitle. It's called Twelfth Night, or What You Will. This could mean something like, call it whatever you want, or indeed, a little of what you're having yourself. This might indeed be an equally good title for the show, as perhaps we'll see. The story takes place in Illyria, which is the former name for the land along the Adriatic coast that encompasses the many countries of the former Yugoslavia. We begin at the court of a local count called Orsino, who is desperately in love with a local lady called Olivia. Orsino has one of the most famous opening speeches in Shakespeare, and one of the most beautiful. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that, surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die. That strain again, it had a dying fall. Oh, it may come o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odour. Enough, no more. "'Tis not so sweet now as it was before. "'O spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, "'that notwithstanding thy capacity "'receiveth as the sea, naught enters there, "'of what validity and pitch soe'er, "'but falls into abatement and low price "'even in a minute. "'So full of shapes is fancy "'that it alone is high fantastical.'" Orsino pines elegantly, in his love for Olivia. She is in mourning for her father and her brother, and has insisted that it will be seven years before she will even think about having a lover. 
So Orsino keeps trying to get her attention, knowing that perhaps he will get no response. Olivia wallows in her grief, in a house that seems to be quite rowdy otherwise. Olivia's uncle, Sir Toby Belch, lives in her house too. He, as his name suggests, does an awful lot of drinking. He has a friend visiting too, called Sir Andrew Aguecheek, another potential suitor for Olivia. There are some servants too, Mariah and Fabian. Even in the shadow of so much death in the family, it seems like a far more fun house than Orsino's indolent, if musical, home. At the end of any other year, I might suggest that the behaviour of these people looks a little bit like the end of the Christmas holidays. There are some people pining for what they don't have, some mourning for what they've lost, and others just drinking to get through it. To be honest, it's rather like these folks are in a lockdown, however something with which we are all still familiar. Something needs to burst in, something needs to change, and sure enough, it does. A storm at sea wrecks a ship, and a young woman is washed ashore. Interestingly, we aren't told her name. She asks various questions about this land she's arrived in, and she's told that there's a lord and a lady, Orsino and Olivia, that are the people of note round here. If Olivia weren't in mourning, perhaps this young lady might go and make herself known to her. But since that house is rather closed to outsiders, our heroine decides to dress as a boy and present herself as a eunuch to Orsino. Sadly, her twin brother died in the shipwreck, but at least she has his clothes and therefore she can assume this new identity. Things go quite smoothly and soon enough Cesario, the name she's chosen for herself, is Orsino's new favourite page and Cesario is falling madly in love with Orsino. That in itself could be a fine comedy, but things get even more complicated when Orsino sends the young boy, who is of course a girl, with a renewed embassy to his beloved Olivia. While all of this is going on, in Olivia's house there's tension between her steward, the stern Malvolio, and her raucous drunken uncle, Toby Belch. Into the midst returns Festy, a clown who was a favourite of Olivia's father. Festy has a very sweet and clever moment when he manages to cheer Olivia up, insisting that her dead brother is in heaven and therefore she's a fool to be so melancholy, mourning for him thus. This is a very worldly, even wise jester. While this is happening, Cesario arrives at the house and demands to speak with Olivia. Today, of all days, Olivia decides that perhaps she will listen to this young man, not least since surely they're all so bored that any novelty is a welcome distraction from all the grief. Olivia and the maid, Mariah, veil themselves, and there's a very funny scene between Cesario and his addressee. Cesario is quite cheeky, almost mocking Olivia's grand, self-imposed mourning, removing herself from the world like this. This narcissism, self-love in the distracted manner of the mythological Narcissus, who fell in love with his own reflection, is echoed in one of the most famous speeches in the play, when Olivia asks how Cesario might try to woo. And indeed, this narcissism is reflected in the manner of Cesario's language, which puts us in mind of Echo, who herself fell in love with Narcissus, and then she was condemned only to reverberate. Make me a willow cabin at your gate, and call upon my soul within the house. 
write loyal cantons of contaminate love and sing them loud even in the dead of night. Halloo your name to the reverberate hills and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia. Oh, you should not rest between the elements of air and earth, but you should pity me. The young man's passion is so sweet, so sincere, and such a perfect foil for her lonely grief, that Olivia is quite overcome. Immediately she responds, finishing the previous line, You might do much. He does plenty, and Olivia falls in love with him. Him that is really her. So now we have a rather complicated triangle, but it gets even better because very soon another figure arrives in Olivia, Sebastian, the twin brother that we thought was dead. So now we have a fourth potential partner and the hope that the play might end with two couples. Sebastian has arrived in Illyria with his close friend, or even his lover, Antonio. The latter isn't supposed to be in Illyria by law, but chooses to stick around in case his dear Sebastian might need his help. In the meantime, the brooding Malvolio has been getting far too big for his boots, lording it over everyone else in Olivia's household. Mariah and Sir Toby have had enough, and she cooks up a hilarious scheme to gull him into thinking that Olivia is in love with him. Mariah has observed that her handwriting is almost identical to her mistress, and so they draw up a letter telling Malvolio of this secret passion, seemingly in Olivia's handwriting. Not only that, they tell Malvolio to smile, something that would be most out of character for him, and to wear yellow cross-gartered stockings, a style and a colour that they know Olivia hates. They arrange for him to happen upon the letter in the garden, and he falls for it hook, line and sinker. What's very funny is that this practical joke unveils a much deeper truth. Malvolio himself has been nurturing a love for Olivia, and now he fantasises about all the perks that might become available if he marries her. Velvet, which was reserved for the highest in society, and better still, the chance to tell Sir Toby where he can go with himself. At this point, the plot seems to be as carefully constructed as a new watch, another of the privileges and newfangled luxuries that Malvolio hopes to achieve things begin to unravel. A challenge is incited between Sir Andrew Aguecheek and Cesario, two of the least proficient swordsmen in all of Shakespeare, making for terrific comedy as they attempt to threaten each other. Just as things come to a head, Antonio appears and intervenes, preventing Cesario from getting hurt. Just like that then, the law appears and Antonio is arrested. He asks for the money that he lent Sebastian for help with getting out of this trouble, but of course the Sebastian that he's seeing is actually Cesario, who has no clue what money he could be talking about. Elsewhere, the actual Sebastian crosses paths with Olivia, who thinks that he is Cesario, and somehow she manages to get him to agree to marry her, almost instantly. With perfect timing on the way back from the chapel, Sebastian manages to arrive for the duel and knocks Sir Andrew about the head, since he, unlike his sister, is actually trained in combat. As all of this builds and builds and builds, we finally reach this magical epiphany moment when the two twins appear together on the stage. Everyone is stunned, and most touching of all is the reunion between the two siblings, each of whom thought the other lost. The play, however, doesn't end on an entirely happy note. 
The joke against Malvolio went as far as locking him up for having lost his mind, and even getting Festi to dress up as a fake doctor to torment him further. When all is revealed, and Olivia explains that despite the similarities, this really wasn't her handwriting, Malvolio storms off, proclaiming that he will be revenged on the whole pack of them. Somehow it works out that Sebastian is more than happy to marry Olivia, and she is delighted with him. Orsino has, over the course of the play, become quite taken with Cesario, and when it is revealed that he is in fact a she, and that her name is Viola, it becomes all the more feasible for him to marry her. So these are the two couples at the end of the play. For reasons I have never entirely understood, Sir Toby Belch marries Mariah off stage, and they are a third couple. Antonio, Fabian, Curio and the rest of the staff are left unmatched, and the play ends with a song by Festi, The rain, it raineth every day. He doesn't sing the whole of it, mind you. Shakespeare saved a verse of this little ditty for the fool in King Lear. Look it up, I promise it's there. Even as I have been recounting the plot of this play such as it is, I've been feeling that it's so much more than the sum of its parts. Despite this being a play that is more prose than verse, it's full of beautiful lines and clever observations. It's a real gift for a company of actors, and has one of the loveliest little observations for any Shakespearean character, when poor Sir Andrew, poor wretch that he is, laments, I was adored once. As I'm saying, this is a tremendous piece of writing for actors. Shakespeare knew his company so well, and knew exactly how to write for them. We know that the part of Festi was written for Robert Armin, who was famous for the beauty of his singing voice, and so Festi gets lots of songs throughout the play. Armin's clown roles are more sardonic, more intelligent than those raucous characters written for the previous clown, Will Kemp. But Shakespeare here was also able to rely on the talents of at least three brilliant young men to play the three women, Viola, Olivia and Mariah. This play works beautifully when played by female performers, but there's a particular level of meta-theatrical excitement to the way that in this play, Shakespeare has a boy playing a girl fall in love with a boy playing a girl who's dressed as a boy. There was a very successful production by Shakespeare's Globe in London that featured an all-male cast, and indeed I had the privilege of seeing an all-male kabuki production of the piece in Japan too. Having honed his craft on several comedies in the past, It feels like this play is Shakespeare's comic masterpiece. There's gender comedy, verbal and musical comedy, situational comedy, and even physical comedy when we see the unlikely combatants attempting to arrange a duel. While zany things do happen within it, it's a very sophisticated play. The first performance that we know about was at the Middle Temple Hall, indoors, and was documented in the journal of the law student John Manningham, who saw it performed on the 2nd of February 1602. His jotted notes about the play mention how it reminded him of Menachmi, the play by Plautus, and might well have been inspired by the Italian play, written by a committee, called Li Inganati, or The Deceived Ones. Interestingly, Shakespeare seems to have invented most of this story himself. There are definite echoes of Menachmi, a tale of twins, and of his own comedy of errors. In the latter play, a man shows up in a new place and immediately says yes to his apparent good fortune, in much the same way that Sebastian does in Illyria. The various confusions and errors that occur because of these twins 
are all the more curious because Shakespeare changes their gender. Viola is a girl, remember. But he doesn't seem to be very bothered about the science of twins. Only twins of the same gender can be identical. Shakespeare's not bothered by it, and neither should we be. Another echo of the Comedy of Errors comes in the language of the play. These two, Comedy of Errors and Twelfth Night, feature more references to madness and being mad than any others. Nearly every character in Illyria is accused of being mad at some point. And perhaps they all are, as well they might be, at the end of the Saturnalian celebrations of the Christmas period. In the few essays and sources that I've read while I was preparing this episode, I was quite startled that none of them mentioned anything about Shakespeare being the father of twins. Twelfth Night was possibly the play he wrote immediately after he wrote Hamlet. If you've read Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet, you will, like me, have been fascinated at her imaginative depiction of the circumstances that led Shakespeare to write a play about a father and a son separated by death and a title character with a name that bears a striking similarity to the son he had lost. But what about the twin who didn't die? Directly after Hamlet, this existential play about death, about heredity, about choosing to live and act in the face of unbearable circumstances, Shakespeare writes a romantic, grown-up, melancholy but very charming play about a girl who has lost her brother and must make her way in the world without him. Despite all the madness around her, she does her best, and is rewarded in the end, not just with getting the man she wanted, but with a reunion. Her brother isn't dead after all, and perhaps they'll both live happily ever after. Now, goodness only knows whether Judith Shakespeare ever got to read or see Twelfth Night, but I do really like this little idea I have, that perhaps her father wrote it for her. I have to confess... I really love this play. Somehow it's been a play that has marked several beginnings in my life. It was the first play that I saw at the Globe in London, that beautiful production I mentioned when it first played in 2002. I also saw it in Russian the night before I moved to Japan, and it was the first experimental production by my mentor there at his theatre's experimental wing in Tokyo. It was also the first and only Kabuki Shakespeare crossover that I ever got to see, And it was the first piece that I directed myself after I came home to Ireland from my training abroad. For all its romance and its comedy, it has, as Orsino puts it, something of a dying fall. But it is far more sweet than bitter that it should now be the last rather than the first play that we look at in this book club series. The reason I wanted to do this project was for the sake of having something to show for 2020, a year in which so many of our plans and projects evaporated. During the first lockdown, several people gleefully announced that Shakespeare had written some of his greatest plays when the plague shut down the theatres and ground life to a halt. And what were you going to do in comparison? Well, dear listeners, we did this. We've read 36 plays and gone through all of the first folio. Of course, we left out Hamlet for obvious reasons. Every week, I've also shared a book that I found particularly interesting alongside whatever play we were reading. And I have to confess that I've watched over a hundred films and filmed performances of the various plays we've talked about. I really hope that you've enjoyed this journey and that it's brought some small meaning to the past several months. 
Certainly, it has been a little respite for me from all the madness, knowing that these last 37 weeks have had a very clear structure. I'm grateful to all of you for your company, for your comments, and indeed for your coffees, in which some of you have been incredibly generous, and for the sheer tenacity of those of you who've read along all the way. We've done it. If you're feeling bereft or sad that it's over, you needn't worry. As well as being Twelfth Night and Women's Christmas, and therefore an occasion for a bonus episode released today dedicated to the history of women playing Hamlet, today is also the birthday of Richard II. So what better time for you to go back to the beginning of the book club playlist and start it all over again. If you need to find it, it's on the book club page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and a very happy new year to you. Let's hope it's a rather different one. And who knows, perhaps there might be a few bonus book club episodes in the not-too-distant future.